Welcome to Startupville, the show where we discuss what it's like to build a tech startup and a startup ecosystem in a small city. I'm Mike Wolsfeld, our host is Dan Gold, and joining him today is Phil Corson of GasBuddy. Uh, the GasBuddy app is a app that helps users find cheap gas, but we've been expanding into new markets, specifically the retailer space with the product I'm the manager of, GasBuddy Business Pages. That product has uh, really found its product market fit with fuel and convenience store retailers, helping them claim their locations, update their fuel prices, monitor and engage with customer feedback, and we deliver them competitive insights to help them increase their market share. And Brett Park of Shiverware. We do mobile consulting for apps, Android and iOS, usually in the Internet of Things space. Uh, we also do our own applications, one of which is Nextlook Hair. Uh, so it's where you can explore rising trends for hairstyles in your community, country, and around the world. Hairstylists can also share their craft and compete to become the best. In this episode, we discuss how you can get your users to fall in love with your product, if you can fall in love with your users. Welcome to Startupville. Startupville is brought to you by Innovation Place and Martin Charlton Communications. Welcome to Startupville. It's a real honor to have you both here. I think I'll start with um, Brett on this one. How did you become involved with your organization? Um, well, we've been around for eight years now. Uh, so when we first started, iPads had been announced, but actually weren't out yet. So it was the very early days of, of apps. Uh, and I was actually a university student doing my master's and I really wanted to get into iOS and applications that you could touch. Uh, so what ended up happening is I wanted to make an application and I was a student and I was under a professor, Dr. Gerhard, who was into um, kind of both music and uh, computing science. Uh, so we started building mobile applications that were instruments. So we built um, a iPad application called Musics, which is now called Musics Pro, which uh, is innovative in its own way, which I won't get into today, but it, it allows you to you know, play music even if you haven't. Uh, and so that's kind of where we started. And so we had to build an application to actually sell uh, or build a business to sell the application. Um, so we built Shiverware. And over the years, we've evolved from you know our one or two music applications into consulting and in, into a larger array of applications in general. And just on that, is it, from what I've seen from this market, it seems that a lot of people who do start, create a project, learn from mistakes, have a level of success, and then another successful project, it seems that either mentoring or, or formalizing that into consulting is a really natural progression. Yeah, very much. Uh, we've, we've failed many times. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's part of the learning, right? So we, we, we built some applications that were very niche because they were very interesting um, and they never became commercial successes. Uh, but we, yeah, we learned tons about, you know, programming and the ins and outs of connecting apps and all that kind of stuff. And then once we go into consulting now, it's, um, I think we bring a lot to the table in that we have, you know, had to build all these apps, different types of app that integrate in different ways for different types of users. Uh, so you end up with a lot broader knowledge base that you can draw on for, you know, for specific projects when somebody comes in and says, you know, we have you know, this thing that we're trying to do in our organization, um, but we know nothing about the tech side of it. So we can you know, take all our prior experiences and roll them up into a, you know, a plan that fits that particular company. And um, Phil, your journey's fairly different in that you're in the 
it, or you went from the kind of corporate world to the the world that you're in and it doesn't really feature any mentoring or or uh, or consultancy work in what you do is there no there's not a lot um, my previous experience was uh, in a corporate setting and uh, i worked on a team that was uh, attempting an internal innovation uh, personally, I, I like to just go fast and break things. And so I found that opportunity at Gas Buddy where uh, kind of our first kind of business model was just helping users find cheap gas. And uh, we found that that's just not a, you know, sustainable growing business opportunity. And so we've moved into different ventures, one of them being a payment platform, the other being the product I'm the manager of, which is building really strong relationships with retailers. Uh, and both of those kind of economics are going to help really uh, project Gas Buddy into kind of 2.0, so to speak. A question that I'd like to ask you both is, how do you, as a as a as an organization within your organizations, how do you develop or work on the next thing that could lead to being the next big thing, that that evolution? How do you apportion any time to um, new opportunities? Uh, Phil, I'll start with you. Sure. Um, what we've done, and, and the product team at Gaspody uses this analogy of you know, kind of ships, we're big on pirate day. And so we really like to just kind of play around with analogies. But um, we use this analogy of Gas Buddy 1.0 is this large galleon, a, a ship sailing the sea. Uh, and we identified that this isn't going to be a galleon that's going to be sailing forever. And so we wanted to send out, send out essentially lifeboats, uh, very incremental, very small uh, adaptations, modifications, business opportunities, partnerships with folks being tasked with each of those lifeboats. And some of those lifeboats didn't make it to shore. And so the way that we tackled that is just we didn't put a lot of uh, effort behind something until we had an opportunity to test it. So there was a couple of things that we tried that just didn't work. Uh, one of them that's probably now turning into a, a, a schooner or some sort of you know larger boat uh, is the business pages product. We've started to build uh, some connections, some networks, and finding some market fit there. The other one that's probably moved into uh, almost a galleon of itself is uh, our payment platform, which is really a, a card that is linked to our whole ecosystem that provides a, a five cent discount for any consumer at any gas station location. And we're using that as kind of a foundation. So we, we incrementally try and, and move out into different avenues. And as those boats begin to mature and we identify that there's an opportunity there, then we start to invest more resources into those, into those lifeboats. And um, Brett, how how does that work for your organization and yourself finding those that next thing? Uh, yeah, so it's we're a, we're a small shop. Um, so what we usually end up doing, uh, being we have the consulting and kind of our own product side, is uh, we take a lot of consulting work um, to you know shore up the bank, right? So so we bootstrap all of our projects ourselves. Um, so the consulting side bootstraps into um, our application side. So first of all, we have to you know find what time we have left after consulting. Uh, and then we have to take a product and and in the past we've we've tried to build things and ship them and uh, kind of see what happens to them. Um, but we're not the best marketers. We're really really good at core tech, um, but products weren't our strength, I guess. So we've over the years kind of put things out and they just haven't caught on. Um, and so we've learned, of course, uh, to go and you know do lower fidelity testing, start getting more feedback, and go into more of an agile process. Um, so as we get ideas now, we 
we kind of pitch them around between each other. And we usually let the ideas linger for months until we have enough passion for an idea that we give up on the old one because we think the new one is better. Um, but it really is always one or two of our own products that we're trying to push on any given day. This bit intrigues me because I was talking to someone over the weekend and they were working on a project for a long time and then they they put it to one side because public feedback wasn't so great. Uh, a few months later, they see someone with a very similar idea in a different part of the world doing exactly, virtually exactly the same thing. And they realized it was the communications and the way that they'd educated people as to what the problem it was solving was and by that time they'd missed that initial you know that initial uh, spark uh yeah. spark an opportunity a question to both of you have you looked at an idea done work on it seen that feedback hasn't been great but just 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 put it to the back burner to go hey you know maybe it's just a time issue maybe it's just too early that was uh literally what we were doing today uh, so the the next look hair application, um, we've actually kind of been toying it around for about five or six years in different forms. Uh, at the start, we just didn't have the right people on the team, um, but we actually launched uh, an initial application last year, and it's kind of just been sitting on the app store and that kind of stuff. Um, but we marketed and thought of it as um, like a Pinterest or a Instagram for hairstyles. Uh, you know, so where you could just post your hairstyles and other people can search and find them. And that's kind of how we marketed it. But it was really tough because, uh, you know, the, the thing is, well, why don't people just use Instagram? Why don't people just use Pinterest? Um, well, I mean, those are very good points. <laughs> so so we've been trying to figure out that it's, it, we always knew that we were different, but couldn't identify the differentiator and exactly how we marketed the app. And so that's today we kind of came around with that. In the end of the day, it, it isn't about posting photos or trying to search for your hair. It's really about a, a competitive system um, where stylists can can try to you know be, have the best styles and become the best at their craft in various locations uh, to make it a lot more of a social um, you know competitive platform. Uh, in which case it, it completely becomes a differentiator from everything else out there. And I think we can now then market it effectively at what the product actually is and why it's fun to use. Oh, so is there a gaming element to it effectively? Yeah, it, it's real life, real life haircutting gaming. So it's it's almost like, you know, trying to find the who is the the top stylist in Regina. If you want the best person to cut your hair in Regina, where do you go? And who is that stylist? And what kind of styles do they do, right? So for different styles, maybe there are different stylists in the city that are the best at something or another. And so you can use that application to find the best stylist. The stylists themselves can you know, compete to become one of the best in the, the city or the country at different scales. Um, and for users, uh, so most, uh, generally women, um, look on the internet at least once a month for half an hour to an hour to find their next hairstyle, right? Can't you tell that I do exactly the same? That <laughs> <laughs> we have a joke. Hashtag, hashtag bald joke. Yeah, <laughs> we, we've run that one through the company a few times. Uh, but yeah, so for for actual users, uh, it allows you know you to say, well, I have you know brown, medium, curly hair. Uh, you know, who actually is good at doing that kind of hairstyle in the city? And what are the, the popular styles for that kind of hair? And you could go in and to the application and find that. That is a really cool idea. Uh, not highlighting or looking down for any <laughs> other purpose. 
but um, I can recommend the app. I'll do that. <laughs> um, Phil, on from your point of view, have you had any apps that you've maybe not given enough time to breathe or the, the boat sunk a long time ago? Do you ever have that opportunity to go back and, and I don't know, throw a lifeline? Uh, <laughs> that's a good analogy, working off of the... The one I put there. Um, I would I would really say that in in the entirety of Gas Buddy, you can kind of buddy anything in kind of how we've structured uh, or how we help people, you know, find a gas station. There's a lot of uh, avenues you can take in that direction. And there's been lots of ideas that have been thrown around that just kind of sit on the back burner a little bit. Uh, but I think overall addressing those markets, especially in uh, nascent markets, which nascent markets are, are like uh, really niche markets or they're very timing based markets. They're very dependent on other uh, systems. So uh, I use Grammarly as an example. They had a really good case study where they just kind of refined their technology, refined it, refined it. And then all of a sudden web based applications started exploding and they just started integrating with all those web based applications. And now they're a very successful organization that just kind of waited for that opportunity. So they knew they had a good idea. They knew that it was going to work. They just needed that market to align. Uh, at least in my world with the with the retailer product, the B2B product, um, we had initially launched with a, a listings management uh, capability, which was essentially allowing the retailer to say, here's our gas prices, here's our amenities, our hours, our address, our brands, all that stuff. And what we found was uh, another company that was trying to penetrate this market, this specific fuel and sea store, it's very complicated. There's lots of layers. There's lots of middlemen that some know the information, some don't, and they just could not penetrate this market. And so we actually formed a partnership that that listings management company would syndicate the information to Google, Apple, Waze, Foursquare, all those places, do that kind of heavy lifting. And we would manage the relationship and the gas buddy piece of updating that information and fuel price. And what that did is it strengthened our value proposition that it's a time saving tool. And through that partnership, we've actually exploded in, in terms of just overall attention in the marketplace. Number one, because we know this industry the best. And then number two, we have the technology through our partnership to deliver on those promises. And so that we were really kind of spinning our tires just by itself with Gas Buddy. We knew this was strong because of the Yelp people, the Yelp ecosystem, the TripAdvisor ecosystem, we knew that it, it made sense. And we just needed that partnership to realize that that's exactly what we needed to just kind of bring that cohesion together to find that success. In the journey of Gas Buddy, something that I admire is the fact that you've become the trusted voice of consumers and effectively become that champion or the the observer of the industry or or the the voice so the media know that they'll pick up the phone and who are we going to speak to we need a a, a a piece on this we're going to call gas buddy how 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 much was that an active or passive piece of communications we've always had a media relations team and it started with expertise in just fuel pricing and, and knowledge about how things happening upstream, so way up at the refineries, impact downstream consumer experience. And we specialized in that very early on in Gas Buddy's existence. We've now migrated to be, like you said, a voice of the customer across now price and overall ratings and reviews. We've surpassed the volume of Google, Yelp, any other listings platforms because we have that 
highly engaged user base that are looking for those really good gas stations experiences. And in Canada, they're they're a little more, uh, you know, similar, I guess, is, is a good way to say it. There's not a ton of diversity in your gas station experience. But in the in the States, there's a significant amount of diversity, a huge amount of shift happening where retailers are focusing more on customer experience. And so we've provided that kind of two-way street where consumers can be very vocal about their gas station experiences. Number one being restroom, you know, it's kind of the, the elephant in the room, but we want to make sure consumers say, I'm not going here because your bathroom literally stinks. Well, uh, frankly, and- frankly, if there's been an elephant in there, we know why. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then providing the, the retailer with those tools to respond back and collaborate. And so uh, we've really started to be the forefront, similar to how TripAdvisor disrupted the hotel industry in that ratings and reviews uh, piece. We're doing the exact same thing in, in a somewhat lagging industry and technology uh, for, for fuel and, and convenience. I find that fascinating that you've taken these tools and you can apply them to that sector. And I wonder, looking at the Yelp, TripAdvisor, how many other sectors are still available for that to apply to. But one thing that I know from motorcycling through Europe, when you go into somewhere like France, there is such a difference in the services available at different rest stops from uh, restaurants and cafeterias to uh, some of them have uh, showers and, you know, massage facilities and pizzerias. It's fascinating the difference from one end to the other. It's complete night and day. So if there's a market that I recommend going to, it's the French market. Um, If you're not already, I'm sure you're there. Are you there already? (laughs) No, we're not there yet. No, get but there. we're definitely there. Brett, I want to ask you about the Internet of Things and how the world has changed for your organization from um, working purely on the apps to more connected technologies. How, firstly, why have you gone in that direction? And secondly, what are the opportunities? Uh, well, we got into the Internet of Things uh, because I was always kind of into hardware. Um, so we, we, in addition to the the application that we made for music instruments uh, when we started the company, we actually built a physical prototype. Um, so it's a kind of a keyboard, and so we had to learn about connected technology. So we actually, um, you know, had to reprogram some chips to create a Bluetooth connection to the uh, to the iPad. And although it wasn't an internet connected Internet of Things connected device, it was a connected device. Um, so we kind of took that and th- thought about how it how it kind of changes the paradigm of, of your world and how you interact with it. Um, and so then that's kind of how we got into the Internet of Things. Um, so we work with a, a company out of the U.S. called Electric Imp, um, and they're one of the larger uh, manufacturers of IoT kind of ecosystems as well as hardware. Uh, so that's kind of we partnered with them to build their mobile, the, the iOS mobile portion of their application and SDK. And that's kind of how, really how we got into it. Um, but it is, it's changing, it's changing our industry a lot in, in that it, it's grown very fast and kind of when we started, it was very new and everybody was rolling their own solutions. Right. Um, and in the last about two years, most of those solutions have been rolled into large packages. <laughs> so there, there really isn't a lot of, uh, mom and pop solutions anymore. It's more or less, you know, you, you take some off the shelf thing and then you connect it to AWS or you connect it to IBM, uh, stuff. So there's, there's not as much work that needs to be done, um, in that integration piece, but it's more in the, the overall architecting. 
I was really fascinated to see the story of the major chip manufacturers are effectively establishing the standard between AMD, AMD saying that they're going to follow Intel's lead on on their standards. Do you think that more standardization in the tech industry is critical for IoT really to truly take off? Uh, I don't think standardization is, I, I don't feel like that's that's what's missing. Um, it's really more about security and reliability, um, just, just of the various platforms. So, I mean, a lot of the, like I said, the, old, the roll your own platforms are disappearing, which is good because it takes a lot of time and money, uh, to build it once. Right. Uh, so as soon as you go with some of these other manufacturers, uh, you can get in a lot cheaper and start. Uh, and once you start, then it becomes easy to find out, you know, what is the actual value proposition of this, right? Um, often people think, I, you know, IoT internets of things. It's a, it's a term, kind of like when cloud computing first came up, right? Everything's in the cloud, everything's IoT, and it's like, okay, but at the end of the day, what is the value proposition? What is the problem we're trying to solve with this technology? Um, so I think adoption is, you know, coming very quickly right now because companies have tried this out for a few years, and now they see the value proposition. Um, so the expense, you know, whether it's a standardized platform or not, they know that they that they'll get a return on that. Um, so that's why I think it's you know adoption is is uh, becoming very fast. I'm going to ask something that I may ask in completely the wrong way, and you can call <laughs> me a fool if I get this completely wrong. Um, but as I as I remember from my old IT days, it was very much about proprietary uh, proprietary systems and proprietary licensing of code, and and the big sell of it was it's extra secure because no one else has got access to this. If you're going on to a standard system, I mean, just to completely benchmark this in completely the wrong way, it's like someone saying, um, I develop websites and I use proprietary code, and someone else saying, well, I just build on WordPress, and it's standardized, it's quick, and it's super secure because there's so many users that the uh, updates and patches make it uh, more secure as a result. So ignore that if it's complete wrong. But <laughs> is, there, is there a thing that security may be better when it's more uh, bespoke coding over a, a platform coding? Uh, I, I don't think security has an implication on either of those. I mean, you can have you can have private code that is very secure. You can have open source code that's very secure. And conversely, you can have private code that's insecure and open source code that's insecure too, right? Uh, it's more about, I think, trust and history. Um, so, you know, you, you want a platform that hasn't had any previous issues or if they have, they've been addressed very quick. Um, and so that's important for both, uh, both you know, open source or proprietary stuff. Um, so with, for example, with Electric Imp, um, their platform, I trust it because they're one of the actual only people that have ha um, gone and done like ISO um, qualifications for their products. Um, and, and when you can trust, uh, you can trust a, a company to kind of do that end-to-end -end security um, rather than just a piecemeal security. Because even though you use, say, I mean, if you use four open source projects um, that are each secure, when you connect them to each other, it doesn't mean that they're secure as a whole, just they're secure as individuals. Uh, so it's, it's really important to know that, that somebody knows what they're talking about with security, whether it is a proprietary or open source platform, because it has to be vetted. Two questions, two questions. I'm going to ask one quick one. 
to each of you just for fun. Normally I ask whether your organization has beanbags or foosball tables. I won't <laughs> ask you that this time. I'm going to ask you, and you have to answer either one or the other, um, which is better, Star Wars or Star Trek? I will start with Brett. Uh, Star Trek. And Phil? Definitely Star Wars. Oh, we controversy. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Brett, tell Phil about your Star Trek Vulcan harp. Ah, well, the Star Trek Vulcan harp that uh, somebody came to us because she was a big, oh, I got to get this right. Um, Trekker? Oh, maybe I got it wrong. I'm not like, I'm not, I like Star Trek a lot, but I'm not. I think fully Trek, committed to it. Trekker is safer than saying a Trekkie. So yeah, there there is a proper term, and so I apologize if I got the wrong wrong one. Um, but yeah, so she Spock plays a harp in a number of episodes, and, and it's just it, at the time it's it's a very trance like experience. And so somebody came to us with this idea of recreating it, and this is again when we were making music instruments a lot more. Uh, it just it seemed like a lot of fun. Um, and so we built an actual harp uh, and focused a lot on the actual playability to make it a real instrument. Uh, so it's, it's a Star Trek themed harp. You got stars in the background and it's a replica of the actual harp. But of course we had to make up the controls and the sounds because the real harp was a prop, you know, so it, he turned knobs and somebody in the back was just changing the music where we actually had to figure out what the knobs did to the music. So we had to kind of reinvent this instrument. It was a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, so there's people that actually play this harp and perform with it, uh, as well as it's also recommended to be one of the, the top just general harps uh, on the App Store. Well, of course, you're both wrong, because the answer <laughs> is Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> that, that's a regional thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, uh, and I, I won't ask why um, uh, uh, Star Wars... Um, Clearly, you like cowboys in space. It's just <laughs> fun. Um, I would like you both to tell me, as we come towards the end of uh, Startupville for this uh, episode, I'd like you both to tell me what it's like being in tech organizations in the uh, Regina ecosystem. Uh, what are the pluses? What are the opportunities? Uh, where do you see it going? Um, I think I'll start with Phil on that one. Sure. Uh, I think I've had more opportunities in the last year to just get a little bit better exposure to Saskatoon uh, and see kind of the dichotomy of, of uh, tech representation. Our, our head office is in Boston, and so I get kind of three layers of tech exposure and, and just overall kind of hustle, I guess, is is a good way to put it within the different tech organizations. Um, so Boston is obviously bustling. Saskatoon, really impressed with what's going on there. And I think uh, Regina needs to shore up those capacities as well. I think it's been traditionally viewed as uh, a government shop where it's just mainly government employees. And that's made it very difficult for us for talent acquisition. We want somebody that's a, a take charge attitude, somebody that's a self-starter, somebody that wants to, um, you know, kind of break things. And that's just not something we've, we've seen in Regina. Um, I've tried to start different kind of functions like agile product open and different things to try and excite those pieces. The, the new Connexus business incubator, I think is a great start. Um, you know, but I, I really think we, we have huge opportunity, especially in Regina to, to emulate what's going on in Saskatoon to really build the tech kind of community between the two cities. And Brett. 
Um, I've been in, I guess, in the tech community in Regina for almost 20 years. Um, you know, I was working for private organizations before I started Shiverware. And when I started Shiverware, I was quite pessimistic um, about Regina. Because one of the reasons we started the company was I couldn't find any really interesting work to do. Um, so we had to start our own company. Uh, so it's, yeah, it, it was a lot harder. We, I tried joining organizations to find tech people uh, and all that kind of stuff. And they really didn't exist. We started some and they didn't really flourish because we couldn't get people. Um, but in the last three years, it's uh, gained a lot of momentum, slightly lagging behind Saskatoon. Um, but it's still, I think it's getting there um, between the uh, Hack Regina community um, has, has seemed to be quite a success, I believe, uh, as kind of a community. Um, same thing with the Connexus Incubator uh, and a few other initiatives by Sask Interactive Innovation Place. Um, it seems like everybody's stepping up their game because there's finally there's finally enough uh, startup companies in the city. Um, Gas Buddy, Vivo, and a few others, right? There, there's actually enough employees and enough people that are interested in in pushing the technology envelope and the entrepreneurial envelope at the same time. Do you think that there's an opportunity that um, through the wonderful services available from Innovation Place and and others within these two fine markets that there is more of an opportunity if both Saskatoon and Regina just, well, frankly, we just got along better? I think we get along great. It's just uh, purely a distance thing. I, I'm sure if, if we were very close, we would also be very close. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, anything to add to that? That extra kind of two hour, 45 minutes of, of distance does kind of uh, put a little strain on things. But I think it's just building that network, uh, the more regional network, I think is, is the piece that's the missing link. Uh, I continually bump into people uh, in Saskatoon that have said, oh, it'd be great to just have this kind of energy, this kind of momentum that we're having in Saskatoon. And it's, I think it's just really a disconnect of, of the tech ecosystem network and the Saskatoon ecosystem network of, you know, what are some ways that Innovation Place or uh, SAS Tech Initiative or any of those uh, larger organizations to try and connect those two groups together in, in more uh, intimate ways, which that, that kind of organic networking will just happen. They'll just, you know, grow together, I, I guess. Before you depart today, I'd love to give people the opportunity to connect with you or your organizations. So, um, Brett, maybe I could start with you. How could people get in touch with you? Uh, well, you can email me, brett at shiverware.com. Uh, our website's shiverware.com. Uh, I hang out in the Hack Regina Slack community as well as the Sask Dev um, community, generally under Brett or Brett Park. Um, or you can always give me a call if you can Google well enough to find my number. <laughs> Phil. <laughs> Great. Uh, on Twitter, I'm PC Corson. That's uh, P-C-C-O-R-S-O-N. Uh, LinkedIn, I'm very active, so you can connect with me there. Uh, if you wanted to reach out to me via email, it's P Corson. That's P-C-O-R-S-O-N at gasbody.com. And of course, you can engage with uh, Gasbody on all of our social channels and, and reach out there as well. Startup Bill is brought to you by Innovation Place growing the tech sector in Saskatchewan, Canada, and produced in partnership with Martin Charlton Communications at wetellyourstories.ca. The show is produced by me, Mike Wolsfeld, and our host, Dan Gold. Our theme music is from GG Riggs and Reactor Productions. Learn more about us and our guests at innovationplace.com slash and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Pod. 
See you next time on Startupville.